My name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as lead pastor here at the church, and uh, we are in a series that we've entitled Unstoppable, looking at uh, the book of Acts, and we've been in this series for a long time. Uh, last uh, school year, uh, we looked at the first half of the book under the uh, phrase unfinished, knowing that God's work in this world is an unfinished work, a work that he calls every generation, including ours today, uh, to take up and to carry forward until uh, he comes back to take us home with him. Uh, And then uh, this last fall, here just some uh, weeks ago, we started the second part of our journey, and and we titled the second part of the journey, Unstoppable, looking at God's work in the world, and how no matter what the world or the devil throws at the mission of Christ and his church, nothing's going to stand in the way. And we're going to see that over and over again as different obstacles and hindrances come in, in the life of the church and in the life of the Christians who are faithfully serving the Lord. And we can have confidence that our most humble attempts at serving and honoring God will produce and yield great results because the work of the gospel that we carry, not only in our own hearts and experiences, but that we need to be sharing with the world is unstoppable. And nothing in this world can stop that that great gospel work from going forward. Now, last week we saw... There was great attempts to try to stop that gospel. Last week in Acts chapter 15, we saw as the mission of God advanced, we saw some hindrances, some obstacles that got in the way of the church. And in many ways, it seemed really dire because it seemed like the church wasn't going to figure it out. There was great dissension and disunity in the life of the church because they were teaching two different things, two different ways to get to God, two different ways to experience salvation through Christ Jesus. And as a result, a group of leaders convene a council in Jerusalem uh, to talk about these things. And they come to a great compromise. And as a result, the church is uh, edified and built up and the gospel goes forth. They accomplish the mission that they have of rising above through the Spirit's leading and through great leadership uh, to uh, be able to move beyond the trials and tribulations they have. And as a result, we are here today uh, unified as what it means to not only serve and honor God, but to know him as our Lord and Savior. Well, today more obstacles are going to come. And the question is, will the church be able to find itself living out this unstoppable mission? This morning, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 16, verse 10. And in doing so, we're going to see three different, if you will, episodes of God working in the hearts and minds of his people through difficulty. We're going to see the spotlight turn particularly on Paul in the next chapters, really to the end of the book. And we're going to see today what Paul teaches us about life and about ministry. Um, But before we do, let's just go ahead and take a moment and pray. Father God, we again come before you and we are reminded of your greatness and your holiness, Lord, through the songs we've sung this morning. Thank you for um, our gifted and talented uh, worship team, Lord, that uh, continually leads us uh, to your throne, uh, reminds us of the great truths that you have shared with us in Scripture, Lord, and and puts it together in beautiful song to lead your people in the singing. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder that we are a call to honor you in all that we do above all else. 
Now, Lord, as we turn to your scriptures this morning, I'm reminded that this isn't the only place that's teaching your word this morning, Lord, and the other parts of this building, uh, faithful and and uh, wonderful teachers are leading our children uh, from uh, the youngest of ages and holding and loving them in the nursery to the teaching and the classes that are taking place. Lord, I pray that you would be with them. I pray for the different men that are preaching at our different campuses this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak powerfully through them as well. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to increase uh, our ministry in the Fox Valley area. So I pray for all of our campuses, Lord, that you would uh, use them to transform lives. Lord, I also think of the churches around us that we partner with, uh, Lord, churches that are, are doing your work. Lord, I'm so thankful for some of the great churches in our area, Calvary West, Christ Community, Harvest Bible Chapel, Lord, and so many others who take up your mantle. Lord, I pray that you would uh, use their time together uh, to grow their bodies. Lord, I pray that you would bless them beyond measure. Thank you for uh, allowing us to know we are not alone in this fight, but we have brothers and sisters gathered together in other local churches to uh, show us that this work that you're doing in our world is truly unstoppable. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the scripture again, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray, Lord, that I would get out of the way so that you would be the one who receives all the glory, honor, and praise for it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've been a part of what I would call two callings or uh, two careers in my life. Um, if you've been around here for some time, you know I wear two hats, one of a caterer and one as a pastor. And uh, I am amazed to think that when I was 18 years of age, I wasn't thinking I was going to do either of them at that point. I was thinking I was going to go to college, and I thought I'd be a history teacher. That was kind of the track that I was going and, and hoping for, but God had different uh, plans in store for me. And I'm amazed that in a matter of seven years, I wouldn't just find one career, one calling, but two. By the time I'm 25, uh, ministry is on my plate and catering is going uh, full steam ahead, if you will. And yet, with both of those careers, both of those callings, in neither of them do I have any finalized formal education. Well, I've taken different classes at different times for both of those endeavors. Uh, I've never finalized or finished any of that formal education, as many of you have in your area of expertise. And yet, uh, to be able to have the knowledge, to be able to have the ability to do these things well, you've got to have a working knowledge. And so if I didn't go to university, where did I go? I tell people all the time, I went to the School of Hard Knocks. And the School of Hard Knocks is, is a school like really any other school. If you really think about it, this school that I speak of is like any university. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. You have to pull all-nighters. Uh, you, you don't maybe get a diploma, but you get to meet new people and have some fun along the way. But the bif biggest difference between a normal university and the university or school of hard knocks is there are no tests. There are no case studies. Everything is in real life, happening in real time. And here's the amazing truth of the school of hard knocks. You do a lot of failing before you pass the test. How many would concur with that this morning? There's a lot of bruises and bumps along the way of saying, I'm not going to do that next time the same way I did it this last time. The school of hard knocks is a difficult one, but it is a great school. It is a school that teaches you lessons you will never forget. 
Well, this morning in the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 15, we see Paul specifically and others around him enroll into the school of hard knocks, not only from a ministry standpoint, but from a real life standpoint. And one of the great truths that we must remember with regards to the school of hard knocks is one of the ways that you can uh, get through the university of hard knocks a little quicker is to audit classes. And how you audit classes is to learn Uh, kind of on the sidelines from other people who are going through those uh, classes themselves. And it would serve us really, really well, instead of having to learn these things the hard way through our own life experience, to look at what Paul and, and the other disciples and early Christians were doing and apply what we learned from their life into our own. There are three lessons I want us to see this morning. Three classes, if you will, on the school of hard knocks. The first one is going to be by far the longest time we're going to spend on any of them, and it has to do with conflict. The second one is going to have to do with partnering yourself with the right people, and we'll spend some time there, and then we're going to land this plane really, really quickly, just so you know, so when we're done with point one, you're not freaking out that you're going to be here forever. So let's look at them, and I'm going to start reading our passage this morning in uh, Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. And as we do, we need to be careful uh, that we don't sanitize and we don't glorify uh, the people in the book of Acts to a level they shouldn't be. In fact, Luke makes it really, really clear that these are everyday, everyday, ordinary people struggling with dysfunctions and struggles and issues, just like you and I are. Because what we will tend to do is we will elevate these men and women to a level that they're not supposed to be. And what we will do then is say, well, because they're so great, because they're so awesome, well, surely that's why they accomplished all that they did, all that was recorded in Scripture. And because because they're so great and I'm so mediocre, then I'm not expected to try to do those things. I'm not expected to take those steps of faith. Well, I want you to know that before us is a picture of a, of a person, especially like I said, Paul, who is really wrestling with what it means to be a Christian in real life. Yes, he was an apostle. Yes, he had seen and done great things for God. But like you and I, he struggled with people. He needed others around him to bring out the best of who he was. And he at times didn't know the next steps that God had for him. Sounds like many of us today. And this morning we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul. And we need to recognize as great and wonderful as he is, he was a man just like us. So this morning let's look, uh, first of all, lesson number one. Lesson number one. Conflict at times is unavoidable. Conflict at times is unavoidable. Look to your text this morning in First First Corinthians, in Acts chapter fifteen, verse thirty-six. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, "Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are." Let's just stop there for a moment, and let's remember it says very quick, quick quickly after some days. Well, what days? The days where Paul and Barnabas had landed in Antioch, 
and had hung out in Antioch and then had gone to Jerusalem and done the Jerusalem Council like we learned last week. And then they head back and they start telling uh, the churches of Antioch what the uh, consensus of the Jerusalem Council are. And so they've done all of that work. And after some days, Paul says, you know what? It would probably be good to go back on our missionary journey, the second one now. And then what we're going to do is we're going to do a reunion tour back to all the churches that we were a part of before. And one of the reasons why is we want to make sure that these baby infant Christians are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what better way to do that than to have godly and wise leadership go and check on them. And so we are told that Paul and Barnabas are going to go do this journey. Now, what do we know about Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas had been friends for a very, very long time. They had been ministry partners. Uh, People spoke of them, if you will, uh, one with the other. You couldn't have Paul without Barnabas, and you couldn't have Barnabas without Paul. They were the dynamic duo that was sent out by the church of Antioch. They had led together, they had ministered together, but their lives together had been uh, so interwoven uh, that we don't want to miss it. Now let's remember, Paul is a new kid on the block, if you will, to Christianity. He was Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. He meets Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the road to to Damascus. He does so on the same journey that he's going to destroy the church, and he meets Jesus Christ face to face, and he comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And because of that, he's blinded by the vision that he sees. He gets his uh, blindness restored, his sight restored. And he begins preaching and teaching the gospel. Well, it became a very, very difficult thing for Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, to be able to preach to a group of people you once were persecuting, right? I mean, that's going to be a difficult thing. The guy that was beating you up in the parking lot is going to step up and he's going to be preaching to you in the pulpit. A lot of people are going to say, wait a minute, has this guy really changed? Has this guy, the very guy that hurt my family, who maybe killed a family member of mine, who maybe uh, imprisoned uh, friends of mine in the church, now is supposed to be my preacher? Well, that transition was very, very difficult. It was even difficult for the apostles, Peter, James, and John, to accept the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It was a bridge too far for them. Enter Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who goes and gets Saul, who believes in in Saul's conversion, who believes that God has done a work in Saul, and he grabs Saul and he comes and he says, listen, I am here to commend upon you Saul of Tarsus. I am here to tell you this man is a man who loves the Lord, who is honoring the Lord. Yes, he has a checkered past, but don't we all? Yes, he was the persecutor of the church, but now he's the great prophet of the New Testament who's going to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Barnabas, in many ways, was Saul or Paul's mentor. And as many times goes with mentees, many times the mentor, as we're taught by Jesus himself, the student when fully taught becomes like his teacher, well, Paul becomes that. And in many ways, Paul becomes even greater than Barnabas because of his gifts, because of his calling, because of his abilities. We learn that later on it used to be Barnabas and Paul. Then it turned and it was Paul and Barnabas. And then as we continue in the book of Acts, it's Paul and his associates. And Barnabas begins to fall into the shadow of, I'm sorry, Barnabas falls into the shadow of Paul. 
And as a result of that, he would think that there would be conflict. There is no conflict. Things are going well. Barnabas is okay. He's the great encourager. He loves Paul, and he loves the Lord, and he's willing to play in many ways second fiddle to a great man. And that all is going well, and Paul and Barnabas are going to head out, and they're going to preach to the communities where they've been and notice what happens. Let us return, it says, and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria, Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now let's just stop there. So they agree in mission. We're going to go and we're going to proclaim uh, to the different cities and churches where we've been. The problem wasn't the program. The problem was... People. It was a people issue. Not Paul and Barnabas. It was John Mark. And if you remember in Acts 13, 13, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had gone on a journey. They had gone to Cyprus and now they were heading up into Asia Minor. But somewhere amidst the journey, John Mark, who is the young cousin of Barnabas, says, I don't want to go anymore. And there's a lot, and we talked about this when we were in Acts chapter 13, there's a lot of speculation as to why he didn't. Number one, it could have been the recent episode with Bar Jesus, the false prophet, where Paul strikes him blind. Maybe the young teenage John Mark is like, I don't want to be around a dude who had a, a, a snap of his fingers could blind me, okay? That's just not someone I want to be close to. It could be that uh, he was getting upset that Barnabas was playing second fiddle. He loved his older cousin and thought the world of him. And maybe he didn't like that he was having to get second place to this guy, Paul. It could have been, as we learned, that uh, when they would have gotten out of the port city where they had arrived in Asia Minor, uh, the mountains before them were great, and the journey would have been difficult. It could have been all manner of things. Some believe he got homesick. Others believe that he may have fallen into the belief of the Judaizers that you needed to be circumcised to be saved. There's a myriad of things that could have happened, but here's what we know. We know that John Mark left the journey, quit on them, and went back to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, that phrase withdrawn uh, in our text tells us it, it's the Greek word where we get our English word to apostatize. He turned coat. He, he left all that he had and, and went the other way. Now, why would Barnabas have wanted to bring a guy like this who had been a failure in the last journey? There are two reasons. Number one, it was his cousin. And, and if you've been a part of a family for any amount of time, you know family's important. Family matters. And you know blood is thicker than water. And maybe there was familial uh, pressure for Barnabas to take this young guy, maybe to redeem himself. Maybe John Mark within the church had given his family a black eye as being a quitter, an apostate. And as a result, the family and maybe even John Mark is saying, give me a second chance. I want to redeem myself so that I can... Uh, prove that I'm a man of great quality and character. 
Maybe that's why Barnabas says, come on, cuz, let's go and let's do this. Another one is, is that Barnabas was that kind of guy. He was an encourager. He saw potential in people. He saw opportunity. He was a forgiving kind of guy. To put it this way, and you might want to write this down, Barnabas was all about the man. He was all about the man, and the man being John Mark. What's going to grow him? What's going to encourage him? What's going to build him up so that he can take great steps for the cause of Christ? Paul says, no way, Jose Barnabas. I'm not going to take him. Last time we took him, he left. Last time when the going got tough, he took off. And we're going to go on a journey, a journey where we have been stoned, a journey where we've been dragged out of cities, a journey where where we never know what's going to happen next. And the last thing I need to worry about, Barnabas, is for your young cousin to do what he did before, and the first time it was shame on you, second time it's going to be shame on me. I knew he's going to, I know he's going to do this, and when he does, I'm going to be the one who plays the fool. I don't want to be a part of it. Now, what do we know of, of Paul? Paul is a task-oriented guy. Paul is a guy that, that sees the mission as number one. So remember, Barnabas focuses on the man. Paul focuses in on the mission. I want you to recognize this morning, in our congregation, we have Pauls and we have Barnabases, right? We have people that are all about other people, and I love those types of people. Those are the people you want to hang out with. Those are the people that you enjoy and have fun with. And then there are task-oriented people, and I love task-oriented people, because if we didn't have you, the world as we know it would collapse. So which one are you? identifying that is of great importance because while each of these are strengths, focus on mission and focus in on people, they come with their own inherent weaknesses. To be focused in on people is to focus in on everything uh, that involves relationships but not getting in many times the job done. Well, as people who are focused in on the program or the ministry or the mission or the details of life can many times walk over and step on top of other people. And that's what made Paul and Barnabas such an awesome team and a reminder to all of us that we're not to live this life alone, but we need to partner, which we'll talk about in the next point, partner with people who are going to bring out the best in us, not promote the worst that comes out, especially when we become angry. So this conflict begins. Notice this conflict begins like every conflict begins with a disagreement. I want to take John Mark. I don't want to take John Mark. There is a disagreement. Now, is there anything wrong or sinful with disagreeing with one another? No, there is no sin in this disagreement. There are preferences. There are experiences. There are reasons why one person looks at the situation from one angle and the other person looks at it at a different angle. I want you to know this morning that there are no less than a dozen things up to this point that you have experienced in your coming to church where one person would say, I love it, and another person would say, I hate it. So this morning you drove into the parking lot and there was a person with a vest and people were like, isn't that great? They're out in the cold weather helping us park where they're at. That's really great. I am so thankful for that. And the next person drives in and goes, what's that idiot doing out there? 
I know how to park. I don't need someone to tell me what to do. It ain't the mall of America out there. Then you walk in and you come in and, and you look and you say, you know, it's so nice. People are gathered and all of that. And, and this is just wonderful. Everybody feels welcome. Other people are like, don't they know it's only 8.30 in the morning? I don't need to shake 55 hands before I enter this place. I really don't need it. And then you come in and some people, man, they run to the cup of coffee. And by the way, I believe this one with you. Cup of coffee, fill it up, sloshing it all over the place. And the other person's sitting there. They don't see the coffee going down the gullet. They see it going all over the carpet. And one person's angry and one person's loving every minute of it. Then you get in here. Music's too loud. No, the music's too soft. We stood too long. No, we sat too long. Pastor John, he prayed too long. No, he should have prayed longer. Who's that guy on the video screen? Can't we have a guy do the announcements down here? We go back and forth and round and round we go. And we haven't even gotten to me yet. (laughs) We can have disagreements. And it's okay. In fact, I've come to learn that that's what makes Sunday night in the pastor's house so much fun. Because I just review all of these things, all of the different things that people disagree with. And it's okay. We wouldn't be human beings if we didn't disagree. Here's an important truth in your disagreement. And this is of great importance. Write this down. Never forget it. Never, ever, ever, ever forget it. Okay? Here's the thing. The way you deal... The way you deal with an issue is just as important as the issue itself. The way you deal with that disagreement is just as important and sometimes probably is way more important than the actual issue you're disagreeing about. And this is where we fail. And this is where Paul and Barnabas begin to fail in some ways, right? Now you say, how dare you say that of Paul and Barnabas, two pillars of the church? Well, this is why I believe Luke is telling us this. He's telling us this to remind us that these guys are real men. They're flesh and blood. And so what happens? Well, number one, there's a disagreement. This disagreement becomes divisive. It becomes divisive. And that happens. Not every disagreement does. Can I just say all the different things that I've talked about with regards to our uh, uh, disagreeing about how to do church? I don't believe has become a divisive issue within the church. I know if we were to start doing polling, we would see half and half and, and all of that, and that would be great. That's, that's wonderful. But I don't think it's become divisive, and not all conflict or, or disagreements become divisive. Because people who are humble and people who are willing to be uh, bendable in some ways are able to deal with some disagreement along the way. In fact, it's, I think, sometimes healthy for disagreement because it draws out the best in, in all of us. But this one becomes divisive. How does it become divisive? They go in different directions. They go in different directions. Barnabas says, you know what, Paul, I'm not going to see eye to eye with you, and and really, I'm going to struggle to do ministry with you right now, and I'm going to take John Mark. John Mark is too important for me to leave behind, so I'm going to take him, and we're going to go do the first leg of the first missionary journey. We're going to go to Cyprus, and we're going to go back and visit the churches where John Mark had been a part of uh, the missionary journey. Paul picks Silas, who had been a faithful member in the church of Antioch, and he grabs him and says, we're going to go and we're going to start from the end and and move our way back through Asia Minor, and they, they list the cities that they go through. And so they're divided. 
And we need to recognize and we need to grieve for a moment and not fast forward and say, well, everything worked out well, so therefore it's okay. We need to stop and recognize that conflict, when it gets divisive, can become unhealthy. I want you to imagine for a moment you are... Um, the outsider with regards to that. Many have said that, um, that, uh, Keith and I play the part of Paul and, and Barnabas. Okay? And I will tell you behind the scenes, Keith and I have had some doozies of disagreements along the way. He usually wins them. Okay? And yet, how would you as a church feel if Keith and I had gone to a place of such disagreement that I say, I don't want to serve with him anymore, or he says, I don't want to serve with him anymore, and he says, well, I'm going to take Mario. And I say, well, I'll take Jeremy and we're gone. How would you feel? You see, we sanitize this and say, but they all lived happily ever after. No, they didn't. In fact, we don't hear of Paul and Barnabas' name together for the rest of the book of Acts. A group that was like this now will never be together again. At least till the end of the book of Acts. The sadness. Think of the siding that would have taken place. Well, I'm with Paul. Well, I'm with Barnabas. Think of the debates and arguing that went around the table. Where people would say, well, Paul's being a jerk or, or uh, Barnabas is being an enabler. Think of the church. Think of outside the church. These Christians can't even get along. They don't know what it means to be saved. Now they don't know who they should take or who they shouldn't take. We need to grieve when conflict comes divisive. And the job of the church is to do all that it can to keep that from taking place. But notice it gets even worse. It can become destructive. Destructive. Now we don't see that completely in this conflict. But how many of us are a part of relational conflict right now? Or in the past, where that relationship that once was a beautiful thing is now just an ash heap. You don't interact with that person. You don't care about that person. When you're not with your Christian friends, you're pronouncing all kinds of doom and gloom upon that person. You gossip about the person. You think ill of the person. You're filled with bitterness. You're filled with rage. I can't believe, and you play over and over again what that person did or that what that person said, and you're filled with anger. And that relationship is destroyed. Paul and Barnabas, two very faithful friends, have now gone different directions. Now, I want you to recognize, because I don't want to forget this, that God is going to take what is a human error, a human mess up, a human mistake between Paul and Barnabas, and he's going to bring it back together. He's going to work together all things for the good. But it's going to take a long, long time. But how are we going to get there? I want you to notice very quickly this morning, I need to move a little quicker than I am right now, four things that we need to do when relational conflict comes our way. And this is the school of hard knocks. Because we all have relational issues. We have relational issues in our marriages. We have relational issues if we're a child or with our parents or with our parent or as parents with our children. We have relational issues in the workplace. We have relational issues with our friends. We have relational issues with people we've never met before. We have relational issues all over the place. 
And what are we to do when our relationships fall apart because of conflict? Number one, follow God's prescription. Conflict is an illness caused by sin. In the Garden of Eden, there wasn't a fight until sin entered the world. And so sin is to blame for this. Sin is the core problem. Sin has us looking at ourselves and thinking too highly of ourselves and thinking too little and less of other people. Sin says the world is all about me. And I should be able to do what I want, when I want, how I want, no matter how it makes you feel or how it impacts your life. God's prescription over and over again is number one, you want to be relieved of relational conflict, number one, stay humble. Stay humble. What it means is the world doesn't revolve around you. If I was just humble, I'm just shooting straight with you this morning, the majority of the conflict that I have in my life would be gone. It'd be gone. Because I wouldn't think so highly of myself that when someone does something I'm not happy with, when someone wrongs me, I would not take the place of God and say, how dare you offend, oh great Tim. But if I'm humble, I would say, well, I offend all kinds of people. I hurt all kinds of people. And so when others hurt me, they're just in the same lot as I am, a broken sinner who does stupid and dumb things at times who needs forgiveness. I need to be filled with love, humility, and love. God's Word says that love covers a multitude of sins. And so I need to be a man or a woman of of love. I need to show love and extend love because love is the root of forgiveness. You cannot forgive someone until you love them. But God demonstrated His love for us in this, Romans 5, 8 says. He forgave us while we were still sinners. God would never have forgiven us of our sin if He wasn't, as John tells us in one of his letters, that He is and always will be love. Why can't we forgive? Listen, it is not because the grievance is so great. It is because our love is too small. And so, if you're struggling with forgiveness today, it isn't the problem of the grievance. It's you have a small heart. And your heart is unwilling to love, unwilling to forgive the wrong that has been done. Number two, remove the plank. Remove the plank. In a passage that Jesus deals with relational issues, Matthew 18, he tells us that we are so quick to point out another's wrongs or deficiencies and that this creates conflict. And so what he says is, listen, stop pointing out other people's little specks in their eyes and pull out the great log or plank in your eye. And what that means is, is when we get to a relational conflict, we need to stop and we need to ask the question, what have I done to escalate this? What have I done to perpetuate this? What am I doing to add another log to the fire to stoke it to be hotter and hotter? What sin, what wrong have I done that might have hurt that person? What might I have done to cause them to recoil back as they have against me. And not just to look at it in that local situation, but 
what other areas am I relationally deficient that might be causing my experience in this particular place? Now, I want to preface very quickly that not all wrongs that are done to you come as a result of you doing something. We live in an evil world. And some are innocent victims that they've brought nothing into it. They didn't choose it. They, they didn't propagate it in any way. And they have at the hands of abusive and angry and harsh people, evil people, have experienced great wrong at the hand of another. And I get that and I recognize that and the sorrow that comes from it. But for most of us, relational conflict is a two-way street. And I'm going to believe that most of the relational conflict that's being experienced in this place, that you have a part in, just as I know I do in my relational conflict. So remove the plank. Recognize you're a sinner. Recognize you are probably as much to blame in this issue as the other person. Number three, stick to God's plan. Paul and Barnabas are in Splitsville, okay? And what can happen in the life of Christians especially is when there's relational conflict where they're together and now they're apart, especially amongst other Christians, you know who we blame or who we punish? God. Because what happens is, is we go to church and we love the church we're a part of and we love that small group we're a part of and we love that ministry we're a part of. And then that person, that enemy, that issue, that I can't believe the wrong that they did. I can't believe they would have done that. I'm done. I'm out. Well, you're not just out with that person, but now you're out of that ministry. Now you're out of that small group. Now you're out of that church. I can't tell you how many people I know in, in years past in conflict within this church have n- never gotten involved in a church again. And that's just plain dumb. Because what you're doing is, is you're hurting yourself and you're hurting a relationship with God. You're not hurting that person. And what we need to recognize is what Paul and Barnabas do. They say, listen, I'm at odds with Paul. I'm at odds with Barnabas. But here's the thing that remains constant. My relationship with God... And so I'm going to keep being the missionary God called me to be. I'm going to continue to serve. I'm going to continue to be in that small group. I'm going to continue to attend that church. Because God hasn't changed my calling in that way. Yeah, I've got some relational issues that need to be resolved. But I'm going to stick to the road that God has for me. I'm going to stick to it. Because I'm going to tell you something. I know this now in my 15th year of ministry. Tons of relational conflict. And I think I have a healthy ministry. I talk with other pastors, they got way more conflict than I've ever experienced. And even in healthy ministry, there's a good dose of relational conflict in the life of the church. Well, I'm surely very, very happy and glad that in that first year of relational conflict, I didn't say, you know what, I'm done. I'm out of here. Because I would have missed out on the many, many blessings and joys that come amidst relational conflict in our calling when we stick to God's plan. Number four, remember we're all in process. Remember we're all in process. Paul and Barnabas take off. Barnabas takes John Mark. Paul takes Silas. And here's what we know. History tells us both missionary journeys were complete and utter successes. While most scholars side with Paul and what it seems that the church sided with Paul in our text, 
Both men strive and seek to honor God. How do we know that? Well, we know it from history because as we learn from Bible scholars and Bible teachers that we know the work of Barnabas and John Mark was an awesome work in Cyprus. And we know from the book of Acts that the work in the second missionary journey is a phenomenal one. Stories that we learn as young kids in Sunday school class are some of the stories of Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi, which we'll talk about next week, where they're singing and praising God in the jailhouse. Awesome stories of what God had done. But here's what we know from their own words. We know that Paul and Barnabas come back together. We know that Paul and John Mark become great friends and ministry partners. I don't have time to look at the passages, but write these down. 1 Corinthians 9.6. 1 Corinthians 9.6. Paul speaks of Barnabas not only as an apostle, but as an equal in ministry. This is years after this disagreement. He doesn't say Barnabas, that scoundrel, Barnabas, that enabler. He says, Barnabas, this equal, this apostle, is worthy of great esteem. When Paul is at the end of his life, first in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 10, he commends to the Colossian church, John Mark, and he says, listen, when John Mark gets there, welcome him. Wait a minute, Paul. He's a deserter. He's an apostate. He left when the going got tough. Why would you welcome someone like that? Because John Mark had proven his worth. And Barnabas in many ways was right. If he had been given a second opportunity, he would thrive. And then at the end of his life, Paul says in 2 Timothy, as an old man, 2 Timothy 4.11, as he's waiting for an impending execution, he says, bring John Mark. He is of great use to me. John Mark would grow up to be a great man. He would write historically the first gospel that the church would have. It's the second gospel named the Gospel of Mark. He would serve and honor God for the rest of his life. And Paul, who argued about not taking him, who saw him as a deficiency, says, I want him a part of my ministry. He's of great use to me. What does this remind us of? It reminds us, listen, when we're in relational conflict, time does have a way of healing wounds. And, and we need to remember, just as we want it given and extended to us, that when we mess up, most people want a second opportunity. A second chance to shine. A second chance to redeem ourselves. And so don't write people off. I know right now amidst relational conflict, you have written them off in blood. Never again. I'll never be with them again. I'll never do that with them again. They've lost my trust. It will never, ever, ever. And then you add a hundred other evers just to make it clear. And I want you to know, God has a way of changing people. And don't speak in those absolute imperatives that you will never or ever, or never, or however you want to put it. It ain't going to happen. God has a way of bringing people back into your life. I will tell you, I live in a small town. And I live in the same town as an adult that I went to school with. 
And I will tell you, two of the people that I hated most in high school still live in the same community with me, and I think the world of now. And it drives me nuts. Because they were not very nice people. But then I think, as I'm looking at the speck in their eye, I was a pretty lousy teenager myself. And they're probably struggling with the same thing. People change. And so give time and be humble enough to say, maybe in due time, through a course of events, God, would you change my heart so that I can be reconciled to this person? Notice, conflict is going to be inevitable. You can't keep it from happening. But you can deal with it in a better way than we many times do. Number two, remember, first point long, second point shorter, third point, yeehaw, okay? Lesson number two in the school of hard knocks, choose partners whose faith is undeniable. Let's move on. Paul came to Derby and Lystra. The conflict's over. He's moved on. He's gone with Silas, and he's heading back to the cities where he was at. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by his brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them the observances, uh, observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So we see the second journey is a hit. And one of the reasons why is Paul's picked well. He's picked Silas, who we'll learn about in the coming weeks. But we come to uh, Lystra and, and Derby. And he meets this young man, again, probably a teenager. So get out of your mind that Paul didn't like John Mark because he was young and dumb, because he picks another young and dumb kid, right? He picks another young guy to be a part of it. And notice, he picks this guy to be his partner in ministry. And I want to expand the application of this, not to be just, who are you going to pick to be on your church staff? And you can be praying, as we've talked about, we're looking for a, a new staff member to oversee our worship ministry, and we need to pray that we pick the right person, and pray that that individual is, is someone who is wise and, and able to do the ministry. But I want to expand it, because I don't think it just involves the principles of, a, of picking the right staff member on your missionary team or your ministry team. But I think it has to do with picking partners in life, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend, whether it's a business partner. The people we're going to spend time with that we're going to invest our lives into, how do we pick the right people? Well, I think we see in Timothy a person that we need to pick in our own lives, and that is a person who's fast. Write this down, who's fast. And I don't mean physically fast. We have no idea. Timothy could have been 400 pounds. He could have been the slowest guy in the world. So what do I mean by fast? Notice he was faithful. He was faithful. The text tells us he was well spoken of. Not just of Paul, but it says of all the saints, all the believers in Iconium and, and Lystra. He was a man of good report. He was a man who was well respected. And as a young man, that speaks even greater volumes. He had a net worth to him. He was a valuable asset. And when you pick someone 
find someone, and, and I'm going to really press, especially on uh, the greatest partnership of all, that being marriage. When you are picking someone, stop looking at the skin deep issues. Get deeper than that. Because as Amanda has learned, beauty fades. Okay? It fades. And you may have a beautiful person standing next to you in your 20s, but like most of us, we're ugly by our 40s. And what I'm hoping for is that I'm doing life with a faithful person because that's way more important than beauty. And I'll be honest with you, as you mature in your relationship with your spouse, you will find out that faithfulness is really attractive because you can depend on it. You can rely on it. You can be transparent with it. He found a faithful man that he could trust, that people respected. Number two, he was available. Paul says, hey, let's go. We're going to go on a journey. And this teenager says, okay, let's do it. But what about this commitment? That's okay. What about that commitment? That's all right. It can wait. I'll leave the business at home. What about your family relationships? That's okay. I'll come back and see mom and dad. It'll be okay. Let's go. Paul, your ministry, Paul, your life is of such great importance. God is compelling upon me that I be with you. And and I'm going to do that. I'm going to make myself available. Wherever you need me, Paul, I'm going to be there. And again, I'm going to liken it to all partnerships, but that of a spouse. You need to find a spouse who's available to you at all times. Who doesn't say, you know what, honey, I'm sorry I can't talk with you right now. The boss is more important. Or the game is more important. Or the kids are more important. Or my hobbies are more important. But we need to find spouses. We need to find partners in life, friends in life, who are willing to drop everything they have and meet us when we need them. And we need to listen just really quick so I don't forget this. Because it will cause all kinds of conflict in the parking lot. When you desire that of someone, that means you need to do it as well. Amen? Be available. Be spiritual. Spiritual. This man was well-liked. He was faithful. He was available. But he was spiritual. He wasn't a lightweight. He was one who was willing to do anything it took to do ministry, even be circumcised as a teenager. I'll leave it at that. He's willing to do it, to go on a difficult journey. And never, listen, never do we see him utter a word of, I wish I hadn't gone. He's so faithful and spiritual that he endures all kinds of trials and tribulations. And we see over and over again that Paul picks well because he would become the pastor of the church of Ephesus, one of the most well-known churches in all of Christendom. And he would faithfully serve. And as we see the letters that Paul writes to Timothy, as Timothy becomes an older man, Paul commends him and says, what a, what a wonderful Man, you've become. He said, calls him my spiritual son. And this is saying a lot for a kid whose mom was a believer and his dad wasn't. So of you who have maybe a mixed heritage spiritually or, or maybe no parents at all that honor God or love him, it doesn't consign you to some backseat of ministry. Some of our best men and women are men and women who come from difficult pasts. This allowed him to become the last thing that fast people are, and that's tenacious. 
Timothy would be one of the only men who would stay with Paul for the rest of his life. Paul would say at one point in his ministry, so-and-so left me, he left me, she left me, they left me. But the ones who have stayed, and he names a couple, but the one who had been with him the entire time, Timothy. And Timothy would have endured all the struggles and all the imprisonments that Paul would have experienced. And he was willing to be tenacious. He was willing to stick with it when the going got tough. What friend, what partner in life are you looking for? What spouse are you looking for? Can I tell you, I am a blessed man. I am hitting the ball out of the ballpark. Not, listen, not because of me. I'm a big dumb fool. But because God in His infinite wisdom and even greater grace has put around this buffoon fast people. And I am blessed to have, and it sounds terrible, a fast lady next to me. That's where the illustration falls apart. <laughs> she's been faithful. She's been available. She's been spiritual. And she's been, she's been tenacious. I do ministry with fast people. People that in many ways, most ways, are far better than I will ever be. And you need to, if you want to find success in this world, pick good people to be around you. Because if you don't, the Bible makes it clear that bad company corrupts good character. And some of us are failing in our lives. It's, it's not because we don't have it in us. It's because we have a bunch of bad people around us. Now, that doesn't mean, listen, we are called to be salt and light in the world, and our evangelism needs to be to people who are broken and lost, and we need to minister to them, and we need to be a friend to sinners just like Jesus was. But around us, who we seek counsel from, who we live life with on an everyday basis, the Bible makes it clear we cannot yoke ourselves with unbelieving people. And so pick right. Pick well. Find others who speak well of the person before you jump into a relationship with them. The school of hard knocks has taught me choose partners whose faith is undeniable. Number three, buckle your seatbelts. Lesson number three, confusion about your next steps is understandable. Look at the text. And when they, and they went, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden, forbidden, underline that word, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That makes no sense. The Spirit of Almighty God stopped them from doing evangelism. Some of you are like, I wish the Lord would tell me that. But that's exactly what He does. When they had come to Messiah, or Messiah, however you want to pronounce it. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there either. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had preached us, had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here's Paul. The Apostle Paul, been face to face with Jesus, and he does not know what tomorrow is going to be for him. He doesn't know the next leg of the journey. He takes a step this way, God says no. He takes a step this way, God says no. How many have found yourself doing something that you think is right, and God says no? 
It happens. And you're like, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what the next decision is. So I want to give you very just passing things for you to think about and pray about when you don't know what the next step is. You don't know what God's will for you is. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. It is okay to be there. It's understandable. We are human beings. We don't know where to go many times. And only a fool will tell you that they do. Here are the people that usually know what their next steps look like, young people. And they don't have a clue. And I don't say that in a bad way, teenager or or young adult. I'm just saying I had my life all figured out before I was 20. Ha, ha, ha. God had different plans. And as now I enter my fourth decade into this life, I'm coming to realize that I don't have it all figured out. That right when I do, when I think life is good, some random Tuesday hits me like a two-by-four. And so what do you do? It's okay to not know what you're going to do tomorrow. And if you're really concerned about it, number one, tune into God. Walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Seek the Lord each and every day. Read His Word. Pray. Ask God, as James says, who gives wisdom generously without finding faults. Tune into God. Number two, when you don't know which way to go, give God time. You don't need to make the decision today. Give Him time. God works all things out altogether for the good of those He loves and calls according to His purpose. It just takes some time. We want God to be a microwave, and brothers and sisters, He's a crock pot. Okay? We want it now. And God says, wait. And a lot of the time, the waiting is the best tutor for living. Give God time. It doesn't have to happen today. Number three, talk with others. Talk with others. We are told that wisdom is found in the multiplicity of counselors. Find a group of people that you can trust and and throw things their way. If I've got a word for you young teenagers that are here, talk to your parents. Because whatever you're concocting in your mind, it's all messed up. And your parents have been there and they love you and they support you and they dream of days that you come and say, hey, mom, dad, I've got a question. We just melt when we hear that, don't we, parents? And we'll help you and we'll work with you. And parents, you need to seek help as well. Maybe you don't know what to do with your child. Seek help. Don't be so proud not to ask. Talk with others. And when you've tuned into God and you've given God time to work and, and you've, and you've uh, talked with others and seems like a good direction, then take that step of faith. Take that step of faith. And does that mean a guarantee? No. Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's going to happen in Macedonia. They get a vision. God closes some doors and that's okay. God works through closed doors. But take that step of faith. Believing what Paul, Silas, and Timothy thought, that no matter where I go, no matter what I do, as long as I am faithful, as long as I seek to honor the Lord, the Lord will take care of the rest. So it's okay to be confused about your next steps. It's okay 
because God is with you. Three lessons this morning, folks, from the school of hard knocks. If we learn them well, we'll be able to serve the Lord, we'll be able to serve others, and we'll be able to enjoy the life that God has given to us as a gift.